Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA Today. Certainly a lot going on in the world of agriculture. We've got a busy show today. We're going to be speaking with Walter Kunish. She's a senior commodity strategist at HTS Commodities here in just a little bit. To watch the market moves today, we are seeing continued weakness, both corn and soybeans down. Beans taking it on the chin a little more than corn, currently off 18 to 20 cents in the soybean market. Corn currently down six here in the deferred contracts. Wheat holding up surprisingly well. Given the volatility we've seen over this past week, currently December, Chicago wheat down one and three quarters, and we've got that May contract down a penny so far today. Walter will be providing his insights there, particularly in light of the Federal Reserve's action yesterday, boosting that federal funds rate 75 basis points or three quarters of 1%, no doubt going to change the way money moves around in the economy. In segment two, we're going to be checking with our friend Glenn Tonser, ag economics professor there at Kansas State University. He's been continuing to track meat demand through his tool, the Meat Demand Monitor. We're going to get an update. Glenn had mentioned recently that we are seeing consumer behavior change when they approach that meat case. He's going to fill us in on just how that change is being reflected in the numbers. And in segment number three today, Josh Linville, the vice president of fertilizer at uh, StoneX will be joining us. We've continued to see fertilizer prices trend lower. I don't want to get too excited. We are heading into that fall application season, but prices have been on a bit of a dive since September. We're going to get Josh's thoughts on how this could play out as the year goes on. And finally, we're going to wrap the show today with Casey Seymour of Moving Iron LLC. Now that harvest is wrapping up for growers across the country, now that they're calculating the challenges they could face on taxation and everything else, no doubt they will be stepping back out into those machinery markets. But Walter Kunish joins us now from HTS Commodities. And Walter, we saw the Fed's action yesterday boosting interest rates 75 basis points. Was it much of a shock to the market or was it pretty well what the trade was anticipating? It was certainly what I think the, the, the trade was anticipating. But, you know, overall, I believe that some of these residual shocks um, or what came out of the meeting will be more prolonged, meaning that Fed Chairman Jay Powell specifically mentioned that the interest rates will continue to rise, perhaps not as steeply as possible, but for a more gradual time. And, you know, overall, what we think that means for the farm economy is, you know, we can expect higher borrowing costs, higher perhaps like operating costs. And for those entities that have perhaps like weaker credit ratings, again, those borrowing costs are going to continue to rise at an even faster pace. And Walter, the other, you know, I guess, corollary factor of this is the strength it puts into the U.S. dollar index. We've been discussing that on this program for the past six months that we have seen incredible strength here in the value of the dollar. And it looks like following this Fed action, we're putting even more strength behind the value of the dollar. You know, abs that's absolutely correct. And what the Fed's decision does is that ultimately it keeps interest rates because interest rates are more um, or higher in this country, cash is a greater value here than in other portions of the world. So what that's doing is that it's increasing the, the those interest rates are helping increase the demand for dollars against other currencies. And what's that's doing, and particularly against countries like uh, agriculture exporting countries like Argentina, Brazil, Canada, Australia, the EU, is that the, as the dollar appreciates, it's making U.S. agricultural expenses, excuse me, exports, um, export prices more expensive. And Walter, it's certainly changing the way buyers around the world are engaging with the commodities market. There's been news this past week that China has opened up some new corn export deals with Brazil. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that means in practice? You know, absolutely. And you're 100% you're right, is that this, you know, that strength of the dollar has been, you know, creating headwinds in particular for, you know, for U.S. exports, but U.S. corn exports. And it ultimately, you know, what we've seen over the last few weeks is, you know, as it pertains to Brazil and China, U.S. corn has been losing ground inside the global um, export market to China, or excuse me, to Brazil and Argentina. But this trade agreement that China signed with Brazil does not come as a surprise. China has been working over the last few years, you know, five, six years to diversify its agricultural supply chain. So in this situation, you know, we see China, we see China signing that agreement with Brazil to buy more corn from Brazil, provided Brazil meets China's stringent phytosanitary requirements. But, you know, again, that's just another, 
kind of, you know, nudge or, you know, headwind for U.S. corn exports. Walter, when we're thinking about China, Brazil, Russia, those BRICS nations, broadly speaking, there's been a lot of chatter lately that they're trying to create sort of their own ecosystem for trading physical commodities, crude, ag commodities, you name it. How do you interpret these countries' actions in trying to form some sort of a trade block? Is it is it an issue you're concerned about already? You know, that is a really good question. And I think, you know, the answer is yes. I mean, those BRIC countries and you know, whether it's Brazil, you know, certainly the R represents Russia, so we'll kind of leave them out of the equation right now. But with India and China, there is, you know, has been a certain pushback from India and China against some of the U.S. policies. And there has been a fair amount of acrimony, um, in particular lately over the last few years, from India. India has been um, implementing import tariffs on U.S. agricultural exports. Some of those are in the form of um, soft, so lentils, peas, but ultimately, as the world changes, you know, we're seeing a shift take place in the world where, you know, countries like India and China are becoming a little more aligned with Russia, perhaps. And that can pressure, you know, U.S. agricultural exports. Well, while we're talking about those countries, obviously, so many of them are energy producers as well. Crude oil, diesel fuel, all of those vital to American agriculture. Where do you see energy prices moving here as we get deeper into the winter? Well, you know, that's a tough one. I mean, kind of, you know, similar to what we've seen with wheat, energy can run, you know, can run higher and energy can run lower, run lower, excuse me. The fundamentals for both crude oil and in the U.S., um, particular diesel fuel, are very strong, meaning that when we look at diesel fuel in the U.S., um, supplies are very tight, particularly up in the north uh, New England, uh, where supplies are at generational lows. And what that's doing is that it's pressuring cash prices and supplies in the Southwest. So what's happening is in parts of Texas where diesel's being produced, given that there's a shortage in the U.S. and there's also a global shortage, the U.S. continues to export more diesel fuel, which lowers supplies here, which raises prices. So again, going back to what I mentioned a few moments ago, increasing operating costs at the farm level. It's increasing operating costs. It increases risk slightly, of course, there with increased volatility. Walter, are there concerns of a diesel shortage of physically not having enough fuel? Yes. And, it, you know, when I say yes, I mean that, in, again, as I mentioned in New England, there's certainly a diesel shortage there. But, you know, as we've seen the global energy kind of scenario change or paradigm change, at the end of this calendar year, the European Union, EU, will no longer be importing any Russian fuels. And that's key for the U.S. because the U.S. used to import both Russian fuels and fuels from diesel fuel from, the Europe, from Europe as well. So we can expect less imports into the United States. Production is somewhat capped. So our export program of diesel continues to kind of you know, rock and roll and is at historic, close to historic levels. So again, we see prices, you see prices continuing to work higher and prices becoming more volatile. All right, folks. Well, Walter and I had a conversation for this weekend's edition of This Week in Agribusiness, so do be sure to tune in to RFD-TV to check that out. Walter, for listeners who want to follow along with HTS Commodities Thoughts, where can they go for more information? Um, they can go to our webpage at hilltopsecurities.com, and there's a commodity section there. Fantastic, folks. Check that out. We've been speaking with Walter Kunish, Senior Commodity Strategist there at HTS Commodities. Walter, thanks for joining us today. Have a great day. And folks, stick around. We'll continue that recession talk with Glenn Tonser, Professor of Ag at Kansas State University, as we discuss that meat demand monitor when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. With harvest wrapping up, channel technical agronomist Don Gustafson joins me to provide an outlook on harvest and an analysis of channel's product performance this year. Don, channel products in the field, how'd they do? Well, because the farmers have faced a variety of conditions across the region this season, you know, some growers were able to get in the field early, others experienced a delayed planting season, and of course, throughout the season, moisture was either abundant, fair, or scarce. 
But despite these various conditions, um, channel corn and soybean products have performed very well. From the high yielding acre to the stressed acre with limited rainfall, we have been very pleased with our solid performance. We have a very exciting lineup and we've got great genetics and great breeding to, to back that up. That was Channel Technical Agronomist Don Gustafson. To see how Channel products are performing in your area and sign up to receive local harvest results via text or email, visit channel.com yield. These acres you've put your life into, your view each harvest morning. While the ag industry changes, this land is meant to be here for your grandkids and then theirs. That's why ADS and drainage contractors across the nation are doing our part to protect America's farm families. We're proud to provide water management solutions that make family farms like yours more profitable, now and for generations to come. Learn more about how we keep families farming at ADSPipe.com. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach, and in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, folks. AOA continues today. Appreciate you taking the time to join us. We're going to be digging in to some of the data that economists are using to help determine whether or not we are in a recession. This economy is very confusing. We've had the recession. Is it a recession? Is it not a recession? Debate over the past summer. And really, the question is, how are consumers behaving in this period of elevated and volatile prices? Well, one key piece of information to help get that figured out is how are they spending their money, both at the grocery store and at restaurants. And when it comes to protein, there is the meat demand monitor that exists to track these things. It is put together by Glenn Tonser and Kansas State uh, University. It is a beef checkoff funded program. Joining us to discuss this past month's results is author Glenn Tonser. Glenn, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Let's talk about the meat demand monitor. Glenn, before we get into the details, I always like you, give us the pitch for folks who are not familiar with this project. What are you tracking in the meat demand monitor? Yeah, so this effort is uh, housed at K-State. You'll find all the information on our agmanager.info website. It is funded by the Beef and Pork Checkoff. It is a national survey. Every survey, we survey over 2,000 folks. Uh, half of them are getting questions focused on their protein decisions at a um, grocery store to take home for at-home consumption, the other half for you know, food away from home, think dinner meal at a restaurant. And all the information from that ongoing survey is posted, the raw data, all the reports. Uh, I try to give a synthesis with you once a month, but there's a lot of other outputs on Ag Manager that folks are encouraged to take advantage of. Absolutely. Fantastic repository of data there. And Glenn, as we get into the numbers, you sort of uh, you make everything consistent by talking about the willingness to pay as the measuring stick here for the demand monitor. Tell us what is the willingness to pay and how do you figure that up? Yeah, so willingness to pay is one economic measure that, you know, geek like me use that is basically the amount that we estimate consumers would be willing to pay, so how much they take out of their wallet for a product whether that's a ribeye steak or a pork chop or whatever the protein item might be that we're looking at, uh, and they'd be indifferent. So basically, what's that magic price to where if I ask you to pay, say, $17 for a ribeye steak, the average person in the U.S. is sort of indifferent between saying yes or no to that. So as that number changes month to month, year over year, it gives us direct insight into how strong or how weakening, uh, in that example, uh, ribeye steak demand is. 
but more generally it's an economic measure that's used just to track meat demand strength. And we do that separately for retail and food service. We do it for two beef and two pork items and some other protein items. And that allows me to give summary statements um, to audiences like yours. Well, let's get into those summaries. Glenn, we've talked a lot about people dining at home since the coronavirus pandemic. That's where we've been taking most of our meals. Let's talk willingness to pay for protein. What have you seen for the at-home diner? Yeah, so the at-home demand uh, was actually up a little bit in October of this year compared to September. But October of 22 demand, and I'm referring to beef and pork demand when I say this, was still down from October of 21. So a slight uptick month over month, but a continuation of the more recent trend that demand is a little bit weaker as 2022 is progressing as we get closer towards Christmas compared to 2021. Uh, That's specific to at home. It is consistent with the fact that we saw an uptick in meal consumption at home. So we also ask in the MDM, where did you have your breakfast, lunch, and dinner? And we let you tell us if you skipped it, but the majority tell us whether they had it at home or away from home. And more people had each of those three meals at home than away from home in October compared to September. And I think that's consistent with a broader trend that, again, we've picked up on is retail demand is either flat or up a little bit here in October. Food service demand across the board, both compared to last month and the year before, was actually down. And it's not because folks don't want protein. We still see good protein signals in this effort, but people are tightening their belt. So inflation is eroding buying power. Uh, I feel like a broken record. Uh, Mike, you and I have done this for a few months in a row and all my other interviews, but that issue has not gone away. So economy-wide inflation continues to impact U.S. consumers. It does. And Glenn, as you've mentioned before, it's impacting consumers both at the restaurant and at the retail locations. When you think about that willingness to pay, and again, we'll we'll talk retail here for just another second, of the different categories that you track, did you see exceptional strength or I guess additional strength in one more than any others? Were there anything, any data points you could take away? Yeah, so the there was a little bit more of a bounce back in ribeye steak than there was ground beef. And I'll highlight that because, um, you know, they're not the same. It tends to be a more expensive item. Not everybody's comfortable cooking a steak at home compared to ground beef, which is not just a main entree but also an ingredient. Um, hopefully, that means that, you know, that taste profile and the uniqueness of the steak is carrying over into at-home demand. Uh, the similar story I would give you on the pork side is actually there was a notable increase in pork shop demand uh, compared to September. And the loin complex more generally, so all our pork shops come from the loin on the animal, uh, your listeners might remember I grew up at a hog farm, so I'll try not to get too geeky there in my meat science background world here. Uh, but that is a very nice sign that I hope continues. Uh, the pork chop tends to be a area that has been hit by uh, the inflation impact so far. Some separate work that Jason Luskin and I've done with the National Pork Board points to the loin uh, being extra price sensitive. And I hope what I just alluded to there, specific to October and loin demand at home, uh, maybe is a reversion of that trend. It's way too early to say that. But I hope that's a first look at some renewed strength for at-home pork chop demand. All right. On the protein side, Glenn, you also track some of the plant-based proteins. I know you've got beans and you track some of the alternative proteins. Have you seen any change in that sector? So when it comes to plant-based patty uh, demand for grocery store at home, there's no major change. Uh, Demand through the restaurant food service channel is down. Uh, When you flip it over to beans and rice, which is included as a uh, you know, less expensive, you know, alternative protein item, because uh, it's important to keep that in mind and make these studies better. Uh, we did see a sizable increase in the demand for beans and rice in October. And I think that speaks in spades to this. Consumers are just trying to, you know, respond to higher prices. Their wages aren't keeping up. Um, I've given full talks on that. You can find on our ag manager website for the impact of inflation. But the boost in demand for beans and rice, I don't think it's just because all of a sudden more U.S. residents want to have beans and rice. I think it's the relative price is becoming appealing, uh, given where they're at with their wages relative to asking price. So that's a very prudent question we should always ask. But as we progress through this inflation story, uh, tracking exactly what the demand for beans and rice is actually tells us a lot about how consumers respond. It does. And Glenn, one of the most fascinating things about the meat demand monitor is the way in which you can track movements through the different categories. And then, of course, you pair that up with some of the ad hoc questioning at the end. And I'm curious, as since we're speaking about inflation directly, I know you ask consumers directly how they're dealing with these higher prices at the grocery stores. What have their answers been? Do you have more folks finding new ways to cope with elevated pricing? Basically, more of the same that we've had for about four months in a row is, you know, roughly 70% are saying they're adjusting 
um, to these higher retail meat prices, and they're doing it in one of several ways. Nothing necessarily new in October. Uh, some are buying lower volume. Some are buying an alternative cut. So I'll use the example going from ribeye to sirloin. Uh, some are, you know, just choosing the cut size is different. So maybe instead of a 14-ounce steak, you're having a 12-ounce. Different ways to hit a price point. Um, but that's more a continuation of the trend we've had for several months. There's nothing necessarily new there. Uh, what was stands out that's related to the, it's not an ad hoc question, but it is another thing, a piece of this puzzle, is the importance of price. Uh, Mike, you might remember we have what we call protein values in this effort. And I'm tracking how important 12 different things are on your protein purchasing decision. And price, of course, is always important, so I don't want to confuse people. But relative to the other 11, price has never been more important. So I'll say that again because it's a really important point. Price's importance in protein purchasing decision was higher in October of 22 than it's been in any month since this project started in February of 20. And that includes the shock of COVID early on and the you know, shutdown, stay-at-home orders, and all those kind of things. Uh, price was more important here recently in October of 22 than it was in those earlier months. That, to me, speaks in spades about the average U.S. resident is price shopping more than they have in the past. Indeed, it does. Glenn, you mentioned price is more important relative to the other factors, but which factors continue to rank at the top of the decision guidance list for these? Con yep. So month after month, taste, freshness, safety, and price are the four that rise to the top of the 12. Uh, price is growing relative to those is what I was trying to say earlier, but all four of those are always uh, well above average. You know, And what I mean by that is they are leading determinants. Uh, begs the question what's on the other extreme. Uh, you know, they're the four that aren't as much. And for the average U.S. protein purchasing decision, things like hormone or antibiotic-free, animal welfare claims, origin traceability, and environmental impact, they rank much lower. And I'm always careful how I say this, Mike, is that's not to say those don't matter. But when you put people in a forced choice situation, which is what I do in this protein values, I give them this list of 12 and I make them tell me the four most important, the four least. So you can't tell me all 12 are important. So I'm revealing relative importance is the key part of that. It's really important to recognize those maybe boring things like taste, freshness, safety, and price remain core to the decision. And we can't lose sight of that despite the fact there's a lot more discussion on you know, some of the more controversial things like environmental impact and the like. So that distinction is really important. It certainly is. And I think it's no surprise that U.S. consumers continue to choose U.S. beef because of its taste. And that goes for all the protein sectors. Glenn Tonser, great work continuing to track these developments with the Meat Demand Monitor. Always appreciate your insight. Thanks for having me on, Mike. And folks, you can track these values directly at their website, agmanager.info. That's Dr. Glenn Tonser. When we return, we're going to talk fertilizer with Mr. Josh Linville. Stick around for more AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. These acres you've put your life into. Your view each harvest morning. While the ag industry changes, this land is meant to be here for your grandkids and then theirs. That's why ADS and drainage contractors across the nation are doing our part to protect America's farm families. We're proud to provide water management solutions that make family farms like yours more profitable, now and for generations to come. Learn more about how we keep families farming at ADSPipe.com. At Bravance, our corn and soybean varieties are vetted nearly 3 million times against the competition. How many? 3 million frickin' times! Hey man, I'm standing right next to you. Ah, sorry, got a little excited. Don't take us at our word, take us at our proof. Visit Bravant.com to see for yourself. Bravant Seeds, it's about time. Bravant multi-year on-farm pre-commercial head-to-head comparisons, third-party and research trials, based on more than 2.8 million comparisons. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Once we take a look at what's going on here in the grain and livestock trade, commodity markets as a whole are seemingly weighed down by a higher U.S. dollar here on Thursday amid the Federal Reserve's interest rate hike of 75 basis points we saw on Wednesday and the rhetoric that came out of that meeting that alluded to interest rates are going to continue to go higher. U.S. dollar index up uh, 165 basis points, 112.88 as we work through the trade on Thursday. 
And again, that's a headwind for grains and livestock. We saw good soybean export sales, but beans down hard, down double digits as we work through the trade. Wheat futures a little more mixed with corn down moderately. Livestock trade relatively mixed. We saw pretty poor net sales for beef of 9,200 metric tons. Japan, the top buyer. Pork net sales, 47,900 metric tons. Still in line with last week and uh, looking okay. Mexico, China, Japan, the top three buyers there. Overall, market's going to be facing the headwinds here from the details of the Federal Reserve meeting. And then also we got to look ahead to elections next week and a WASDE report coming up here next week. StoneX released their November customer survey showing a national yield of 174.5 bushels an acre on the corn side and soybean yield dipping slightly lower to 50.9 bushels per acre. Also have to keep in mind South American weather and watching the crop down there as well as that continues to advance along a little bit of dry weather coming in for Brazil and Argentina the next 7 to 10 days. In the trade, as we work through our action, we see corn down around 7 to 9, beans down 20 to 25 cents, and wheat futures mixed a couple of cents either side of unchanged. Hogs are up slightly with cattle down slightly. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. 180 over 111 and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92 and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100 and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell everything's changed. I had to tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Of course, harvest is rolling along, wrapping up for some folks here across the Corn Belt, which means for more of us, thoughts are turning to that 23 season, and we got to figure out what we're going to put in the ground. In order to do that, we got to figure out what the fertilization situation is going to be this next year. To give us some insight on that, we're joined by Josh Linville, Vice President of Fertilizer over at Stonex. And Josh, fertilizer prices are trending down, at least they have been. Is this a trend that's going to continue? Well, it depends on the product. Uh, on the phosphate and the potash side, it's a lot of the indications are pointing in that direction. Nitrogen, it's turned around here the last 40 hours. A few things have started to pop up. Now, giving us a little bit of question, we at least started to see some hope that prices were sliding, but now I'm not so sure. Like everything in fertilizer, give it a day, it'll change. Well, that's a great point, Josh. Let's let's look at this nitrogen situation right off the bat. What has happened here in the last 48 hours that's given that market some life? Well, India stepped back in the marketplace, and a lot of people don't realize that India is a major, major buyer of urea, and they have a unique way of buying their tons. Uh, they go out, they offer a tender, they open up all the offers. Everybody that wants to sell has to drop down to the lowest price for each one of their coast, west coast, east coast, and then they go purchase big tons. The last tender they just got done wrapping up was 1.5 million ton. Well, following that, the world thought there's no more demand, inventories are going to grow, nobody really wants to step in front of this thing, and prices started to slide down. Well, the shock of the year, uh, India just stepped back in. I mean, not more than, what, a week or two after they wrapped up their last one? It looks like they're going to be buying another million ton. This has all of a sudden put a lot of support in the market. We're starting to see prices like in Egypt have jumped up uh, 75 bucks a ton in the last 48 hours. Arable price ideas, NOLA price ideas all rising. It's, uh, it's definitely turned a corner with this marketplace. Josh, for us, our listeners who aren't in and out of the massive wholesale fertilizer industry, put that one and a half, one million metric ton order in perspective. How often do we see that kind of number trade at one time in the fertilizer business? 
It's not very often. India is about the only one that does it. Uh, it's, they are definitely the only one that does it the way that they do it. And it, depending on the time of year, they come in a few different times to buy chunks of tons like this. But with them trying to produce more and more of their own product, it's becoming less and less. Gotcha. Well, while we're thinking uh, fall application here, Josh, what have you seen so far in the early application season here in the U.S.? It's still a little bit early to tell, right? I mean, we're only uh, November 3rd. Uh, when you look at the anhydrous side of things, it's just too early. When you talk to the people down in the Southern Plains, the Texas region, they're not giving us the warm fuzzies. They are talking a lot about, you know, it's way too dry. It's been way too hot. The conditions aren't very good. They don't expect a very good fall season. And if you can start getting further north, let's say like around where we are, northwest Missouri, we're getting a little bit of rain. Soil, temperature, or soil moisture is not quite as bad as it had been. But the problem is it's just too hot. Um, and so we just haven't seen much of a start to the anhydrous run. Phosphate potash demand is going to be interesting. And I think it's going to be very highly dependent on where a person is. I think farmers in the core of the corn belt are obviously going to put on normal application rates. They're going to go normal pho or phosphate, normal potash, normal corn acres. But when you start going to those outer areas, I think that's where the big difference is going to be. We do expect demand on both of those two products to be down again this year, just like it was last year. If everything stays the same, which like everything in the grain world, everything in the fertilizer world, nothing seems to stay the same uh, very long. Well, that's the thing. Nothing is staying the same. Josh, if we're thinking ahead to this next year, we've got to get so many tons of fertilizer back up this Mississippi, the inland waterway mm -hmm. system writ large. Of course, we continue to experience the drought. Can you give us an update on, on where things are in the system right now? How are we sitting geographically for supplies in country? We're doing okay for right now. Um, there's still a pretty good tranche of time between now and next spring. So we've still got a pretty good amount of time to get product into place. But the system, uh, the river system continues to be a big, big worry. I mean, it's not just fertilizer, right? It's grains, everything else that moves up and down the river system. But selfishly, from a fertilizer standpoint, that is a big, big problem. Because of low water levels, every single barge is having to load lighter. So let's see that each one is having to load two, 300 ton less. And each ship is having to take less barges per tow. So it, it isn't a river system where it's just completely shut down like some people might think. Product is still flowing. But yes, they're hitting some choke points where they have to stop transit for a day or two while they do dredging operations, things like that, but they are still able to move product. But when you start to think about what we are losing every single boat that is moving up and down the water, little percentages turn into very, very big numbers. And that's where we start getting a little nervous that, you know, if this continues for another two or three months, this could be this relatively somewhat of a decent concern could turn into a very major concern. Absolutely. I mean, that is the the overriding worry is if this pattern doesn't shift and moisture start to fall, that two, three months could be here before we know it. Josh, with that in mind, for growers who know they're going to put on normal applications or they hope to, is this a time to start securing stuff and, and I mean, getting it as close to you physically as possible? That's what we've been telling people, uh, at least having that conversation. Right now, it's one of those possessions is nine-tenths of the law type situations. And like we've been talking for so long, I, I realize the farmer's always looking for the best way to get the lowest price and this and that. Then they're very cagey with their information. They don't want to share it because they don't want it to be used against them. I fully understand. I grew up on a farm. I understand how that whole process works. But guys, these are, this is a different world that we are operating in. This is a world that we need to be talking more, not less, with our supplier, with our retailer, with our co-op. That retailer co-op is sitting there looking at the same price risk that the farmer is. They are just as scared of it. The more information, the more conversations we can have with them, the more front foot they can be on getting product in place so they can have their product sitting there when the farmer needs it. That makes sense. This is the year to be aggressive, be be assertive, get those needs in early and have those conversations. As we're thinking about the international world, Josh, we've seen export bans from different countries throw the fertilizer market really into tailspins over the past two years. What What is the current update on international trade? Trade still halted on a lot of phosphate out of China? Um, yeah, there are still some restrictions in place for both phosphate and nitrogen coming out of China. Now, countries such as Russia, they have got export caps in place, but it's really a cap that has been in line with what they have done here recent years. So it's nothing that we see as being, we don't think it's going to restrict anything. It's more of a protectionary uh, standpoint. It's more making sure they don't just all of a sudden export double what they normally would and leave Russian farmers in a lurch. It's, it's gotten a little bit better as world prices came off their highs in late March, early April. Uh, there are still some things that we need to watch. We're still watching China very, very closely going into the start of the new year to see if they put a new ban in place to stop that completely. 
and see what the fallout's going to be around the rest of the world. But things have loosened. Things have improved just a little bit here in the last several months. Well, that's good to hear. I'm also hearing reports of loosening over in Europe earlier this year, Josh. We talked during the summer and European ammonia production and hydrous production was effectively shut down. Some of those plants are coming back online. Could you give us an update on the European situation? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as has been the case, global nitrogen prices have been tracking the European natural gas price very, very closely here for a while. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So we had seen the European, the Dutch TTF rally as high as $101, $103 in the MBTU. As of this morning, all the futures months down sub 40. Uh, yesterday was as low as 36 across all the futures months. And so this is incentivizing a lot of these European plants to turn back on, whether because it makes sense from a financial standpoint or because we're getting closer and closer to winter. I mean, these nitrogen plants, it's very high pressure, high temperature. It's a very difficult system that is hard on machinery. These plants being down short term, and while the temperatures outside are still relatively warm, those plants are hard enough to restart as it is. When it gets cold outside, things start freezing. They've been offline longer. It gets that much harder. And there's a lot of these plants that are older, and there's some questions that if they didn't start before winter, if they ever would restart. So natural gas falling, winter months coming, fear that you could lose the plant completely, we're starting to see a lot more of this production back online. We had production rates down as low as 30% of normal at the height of the natural gas price. We think that's closer to 50% today with some of the rumors of plants quietly restarting. If they start getting back to normal operating rates, we could be back to 70%. All right, Josh. And if that continues to grow, I imagine the expectation is at least volatility for nitrogen pricing would start to reduce. Yeah, it would definitely help because not only are you gaining back global supplies, we're also losing global demand because European farmers are no longer having to look outside of Europe to go find their nitrogen needs. Now, all of a sudden, they get depend on that plant that's right in their back door. So that helps to soften the marketplace. That helps to improve the global S&D. Josh, while we're thinking globally here, we've got growers down in South America getting that uh, first soybean crop in the ground. Looking ahead to that second safrina crop, do we have an estimate on how they're sitting for fertilization needs? I, they are ahead of schedule. If you look at Brazilian imports, they have been well ahead of schedule. And when you look at the origin from it, a lot of that's been coming from Russia. Uh, Russia has played a major, major role in the import flow of nitrogen and phosphate, even potash uh, shipments into there. And we've seen Brazil have so much product that at times they've tried to re-export the product because they just they don't have the capacity to internalize it. They can't move it, and these ships get very expensive to sit out on the water. So they are sitting ahead. They are sitting very, very comfortably on fertilizer supplies. That's not to say that they don't need to purchase more, but they are ahead of their game. And like we had talked about months ago, Russia's been playing politics with their energy exports. Fertilizer is in energy. So they are going to places like uh, to Brazil, and they're going to places like India in developing these relationships, and these countries are more than happy to do so. I can get a guaranteed fertilizer supply at a discounted rate? Yes, please. Absolutely. And I would imagine, Josh, that Russia has made similar deals with China. That's correct. Now, that's more on probably the potash side. Remember that on phosphate nitrogen, China is more of an exporter. But yes, those two countries have worked very, very closely together. All right, Josh. Well, it sounds like the moral of this story is volatility is expected. The situation might be getting a little bit better, but communication is key for getting those needs secured ahead of the 23 growing season. Is that where your head is at right now? Absolutely. If there's an opportunity to lock in a profit, don't be scared of that. Um, you know, it's going to be one of those situations you might look back and say, wow, if I would have waited, I could have done a little bit better, made a little bit more. But if you have an opportunity where you can buy in your inputs, you can sell your outputs, and you can lock in a profit for next year, that's a good thing. It certainly is. Folks, that's Josh Linville, Vice President of Fertilizer over at StoneX. Josh, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, sir. And when AOA returns, we're going to talk with our friend Casey Seymour of Moving Iron LLC about just what is happening here in the used machinery market across the country. Stick around for more AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see 
became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and the feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve together, we can make a difference, bite by bite. These acres you've put your life into, your view each harvest morning. While the ag industry changes, this land is meant to be here for your grandkids and then theirs. That's why ADS and drainage contractors across the nation are doing our part to protect America's farm families. We're proud to provide water management solutions that make family farms like yours more profitable, now and for generations to come. Learn more about how we keep families farming at ADSPipe.com. With harvest wrapping up, channel technical agronomist Don Gustafson joins me to provide an outlook on harvest and an analysis of channel's product performance this year. Don, channel products in the field, how'd they do? Well, because the farmers have faced a variety of conditions across the region this season, you know, some growers were able to get in the field early, others experienced a delayed planting season, and of course, throughout the season, moisture was either abundant, fair, or scarce. But despite these various conditions, um, channel corn and soybean products have performed very well. From the high yielding acre to the stressed acre with limited rainfall, we have been very pleased with our solid performance. We have a very exciting lineup and we've got great genetics and great breeding to, to back that up. That was Channel Technical Agronomist Don Gustafson. To see how channel products are performing in your area and sign up to receive local harvest results via text or email, visit channel.com yield. This is the place most people think of when they hear that a seed has been engineered for superior performance and designed with proven genetic traits. Because something like that could only come from a lab, right? But this is where Allegiant Seed by CHS comes from. It's made by farmers for farmers. Its advanced genetics and unbeatable value are proven here in their fields to make sure they do the job in yours. Talk to your CHS retailer about Allegiant Seed today or learn more at AllegiantSeed.com. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to The Monthly Grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on The Monthly Grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Well, folks, thanks for tuning in to AOA today. You know, over the past two years, we have seen exceptional demand for America, from American farmers rather for farm equipment, and that is being reflected in both demand uh, stories out there showing up in auctions and used machinery markets. It's also showing up in the earnings reports of some of the very large manufacturers. On Monday, Agco released their quarterly profits and third quarter 2022 was record sales for Agco. Sales of $3.1 billion in the third quarter. That's up 14.5% year over year. Strong farmer demand is driving these strong returns and we're seeing it throughout all aspects of the machinery market. All of those aspects, which are tracked by the team at Moving Iron, led by Casey Seymour. He joins us now. And Casey, farmer buying still a big picture here in the ag equipment marketplace, isn't it? Yeah, very much so, Mike. It's, uh, we're, we're seeing a good year-end uh, push here uh, going into uh, 23. So I'm excited to see what happens in the auction market. We're starting to see that heat up very much so, Mike. Well Let's talk about what we're seeing in the auction market so far. Of course, those post-harvest sales are just starting to fire up. Casey, what are some of the early results telling you that farmers are really hot after this year? Well, it's real crop tractors, Mike. I mean, that's, that's one of the biggest things we see every year, year in and year out. It's that tractor marketplace that, that really drives and fuels what's happening in the marketplace. We're seeing some pretty good results on uh, some combine sales that I've watched here of late. But uh, primarily, it's that you know that that 300 plus horsepower row crop tractor that really seems to be the uh, the uh, apple of most people's eye right now. And what are prices doing, Casey? Have you seen any trends that we can pull out to assess the industry? You know, one thing I will say about about row crop trends and what we see there's not a whole bunch of consignments type auctions that we would see in the past this time of year where. You know the local dealer or the uh, the local jockey or something like that's having a having a yearly consignment sale. Most of the stuff we're seeing right now is some retirement stuff and and various estate sales, and the, and those prices tend to be significantly higher than what we'd see at a typical consignment sale. So I say from a trend line perspective, I don't think anything is is really moving up where values are are, are increasing by any means, but. Um, you see maybe just a little bit of that, but primarily, Mike, it's just it's holding tight and it's staying where it's been for the past six months. Yeah, it certainly makes sense. Casey, you know, one of the unique aspects that Moving Iron brings to the conversation is the fact that you've got a connection to dealers throughout the country. And I'm wondering, inventory on the lots, now that we've got manufacturers kicking the pace back up, are we starting to see lots refill or are they still pretty empty across the country? I think it depends on where you're at. I've talked to some guys uh, that I deal with, and you know, in the southeast, and they're seeing some some uh, tractors that are that are starting to, to pile up on the lot a little bit. And a pile up is probably a strong a strong term there, but we're starting to see some some residual tractors kind of hang around a little bit. Um, out here where I'm at, you know, we we have uh, our lots are fairly uh, fairly light on inventory. But all that being said, with the amount of inventory that got pushed out in this third quarter that you talked about, and you know, physical first quarter for for deer and those kind of things or physical fourth quarter, I'm sorry, for deer, and those things where we've seen a lot of those machines get pushed out, we will have machines on the lot that we've had in the past. Going into this November, December, January timeframe, um, a lot more uh, available inventory that, we've, that we didn't expect to see happen um, with, with what some of these uh, delivery dates looked like early on in the year. All right. Well, as somebody who likes to whip into machinery dealer lots and just poke around, it'll be good to see more inventory coming back on hand. Uh, I'm question, uh, curious, Casey, of course, tax implications are a huge driver of purchasing decisions. I know you keep up with the tax uh, issues. Is there anything big changing this year that growers need to be thinking about while they make their purchases? You know, like I really haven't heard uh, much. Um, I, I know there was some Section 179 was sunsetting, and I, and I haven't heard if, what that looks like um, going into 23. Um, but I know that's something that will be definitely uh, a, a big thing on people's mind. That would be a big change in um, the way, uh, you know, purchases are made at the end of the year and depreciation schedules and those kind of things. So definitely keep an eye on that. Um, but really, like, I haven't heard much of anything that, that's really different going in uh, to the end of 22. That wasn't already in place. It's kind of what happens in 23 is what's going to be some of the, the bigger kickers there. All right. Well, that makes sense. Casey, I'm, I'm going to come back to a big question here. We've got input prices skyrocketing throughout the farm sector. Machinery is no different sure. for folks who want to upgrade their machines next year, but maybe not spend the dollars on a new piece of iron. Are there more tools out there for them to make it a better experience? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, interest is a big thing right now. Right? You have a lot of people talking about interest rates, and we have, a, you know, we're seeing that pinch. You know, the Fed came out yesterday with a, a three-quarter percent uh, raise in, in the Fed rate, and they're talking about doing the same thing in in, uh, in December and, and maybe taking a look at the first quarter and what that might look like. So, I mean, right now we are seeing some some various programs that are out there where the uh, you know to, to buy down a, a quarter point or something like that isn't necessarily as expensive as what we had had anticipated and, and, you know, looking at some split down payments and those kind of things, all those different factors come into play more now than ever. Um, you know, the leasing thing has has kind of poked its head up here a little bit, but depending on where you're at, leasing is going to be a, a, a tight struggle, in my opinion, uh, to to make that a, a tool for for buyers to come in and, and utilize. Uh, I just don't see the, the real benefit in some of that. Uh, now, there's various things that go into play, but from where I'm sitting at in my part of the world, I just don't see the uh, the leasing as being a, a big part of that. But there are tools out there. Um, just work with your local dealer on what that looks like, and and there's some there's some options out there that that aren't as dismal as what people want to make it out to be. That's a good point, Casey. And upgrade kits. Are you still seeing a lot of demand for those for these uh, older model tractors? Yeah, we're seeing the uh, the interest in in upgrade kits. And I think that's the wave of the future too. When you start looking at how equipment plays out and what that looks like, especially on the planner side and the sprayer side. Um, these upgrade kits are going to be a, a bigger and bigger part of, of what we're doing just because of what it costs to upgrade that and what it costs to uh, to operate those. Um, to me, it's it's a good it's a good future. We have plenty of people interested in, in those upgrade kits for planners and sprayers right now. They certainly will. Folks, you can keep up with Casey's thoughts on the Moving Iron podcast. You can find it in all your favorite places to get podcasts or visit movingironllc.com. Casey Seymour, thanks for joining us today for the update on the equipment market. Appreciate it, Mike. Have a good day. Hey, and folks, tune in tomorrow. We're going to talk with Todd Neely of DTN about some of the ag legal cases that are currently pending in the court system. And we'll have more news on the markets as they continue to stay volatile. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. This is the place most people think of when they hear that a seed has been engineered for superior performance and designed with proven genetic traits. Because something like that could only come from a lab, right? But this is where Allegiant Seed by CHS comes from. It's made by farmers for farmers. Its advanced genetics and unbeatable value are proven here in their fields to make sure they do the job in yours. Talk to your CHS retailer about Allegiant Seed today or learn more at AllegiantSeed.com. These acres you've put your life into, your view each harvest morning. While the ag industry changes, this land is meant to be here for your grandkids and then theirs. That's why ADS and drainage contractors across the nation are doing our part to protect America's farm families. We're proud to provide water management solutions that make family farms like yours more profitable, now and for generations to come. Learn more about how we keep families farming at adspipe.com.